Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. I'm your host, Jay Cordell, a reporter in our Moscow newsroom. This week on the programme... Can Russia and Turkey strike a deal to avoid direct military confrontation in Syria? So essentially what we've got here is the last roll of the dice in the war. It's the bit where Russia and Turkey cannot any longer ignore the fact they're on different sides and have now found themselves in direct opposition. Henry Foy of the Financial Times joins us in the studio as Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan flies to Moscow for a crunch summit with Vladimir Putin. And later, from a field of more than 20, there are now two clear frontrunners in the race to be the Democrats' candidate for this year's US presidential election. Sanders' vision is that America needs to reform at home in order to undermine Russia abroad. Journalist Ben Judah will be on the line to weigh up where Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden stand on all things Russia. The leaders of Russia and Turkey meet in Moscow today in a bid to de-escalate fighting in Syria, which has brought the two countries to the brink of direct confrontation. How did we get here? Well, Idlib uh, is the last sizable remaining rebel stronghold uh, in Syria, and it is clearly a fly in the ointment for the Syrian regime and for Russia. And I think this latest offensive, which began uh, late last year and has seen hundreds of thousands of people fleeing for their lives, is a sign uh, that the patience of the regime regime in Russia uh, is, is running out. This is the latest episode in a fraught nine-year civil war which has killed hundreds of thousands, created millions of refugees and reshaped geopolitics in the Middle East. That meeting between President Putin and President Erdogan is due to get underway as we record this show and I'm delighted to have Henry Foy, Moscow bureau chief for the Financial Times, in the studio to help us understand what's at stake. Hi, Henry. Thanks for coming in today. No problem. So first of all, can you bring us up to speed? What's caused this latest deterioration and just how serious is it? So, of course, the most important context here, Turkey backs the rebels who've been trying to overthrow um, uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Russia supports Assad since 2014. Massive military deployment there has basically saved the president, turned the civil war in his favor. Um, Idlib is basically the last redoubt of the, of, the, of the opposition. It's the last major enclave where there's any kind of opposition, military or otherwise, to Assad. It's also the the province that that borders Turkey. It's hugely important for Erdogan. Um, He has two objectives, really. The first is to stop a mass wave of refugees. The UN is is saying up to about 3.6 million refugees could be driven across the border into Turkey. That's a massive problem for Erdogan, who already has huge domestic opposition to the number of Syrian refugees already in Turkey. And the second objective is basically to create some kind of a buffer zone. He doesn't trust Assad. Turkey has been sort of trying to destabilize the Assad regime previous to the war and now basically wants to make sure it has some kind of buffer zone up against its border to stop Assad uh, using terrorism or using any kind of state apparatus to to interfere in Turkey. And why have Russia and Turkey been brought to the brink here? Well, basically, since Russia started entered in the war in 2014, the two of them have, have realised that having two very powerful, uh, very military-able states in, in one war is a very dangerous situation. So they've struck what we've tried to describe as a pragmatic alliance, essentially. They're not on each other's side, they're obviously on, on opposite sides, but they've managed to work around 
around that by essentially realizing that Syria is a very big country. The war was a very complex operation. There are lots and lots of different things that had to be sorted out. That was fine up until about 2016 when the, the last remaining place that had to be dealt with was Idlib. And in Idlib, there were two completely opposing objectives. As I said before, this is what Turkey wants, those two objectives, to hold Idlib and make it something of a, a pro-Turkish or at least buffer state zone, uh, whereas Assad wants to completely rid uh, Idlib of any opposition. And Mr. Putin, of course, on the record saying Syria must be entirely under Assad's control. That's the only situation Russia will accept. So essentially what we've got here is the last roll of the dice in the war. It's the bit where Russia and Turkey cannot any longer ignore the fact they're on different sides and have now found themselves in direct opposition. And what's going to be on the agenda for today's talks and what's likely to come out of that? Well, it's hard to say exactly, but what we're being told is essentially Erdogan is looking for some kind of ceasefire and Putin would sort of accept that too. Of course, the devil is massively in the detail. Erdogan wants the Syrian uh, army units that have pushed forward into Idlib to withdraw back to their prepositions to give Turkey some kind of military presence there. And, uh, and, and Putin wants to make sure that there's not more terrorist groups, extremist groups in Idlib that they say, that, that Russia says, are being supported uh, by Turkey, both in terms of aid and increasingly with, with weapons as well. Um, in 2018, they did strike a deal, a, a ceasefire of sorts, um, that, that fell apart essentially because Assad could not resist continually trying to push into Idlib. And the Russians were saying, well, look, Turkey, you're not clearing Idlib of the extremist elements, which you said you would, and they are using Idlib as a base to attack uh, Russian uh, military sites. And you mentioned it a bit there, but how can we think about the relationship between Russia and Turkey? They're on different sides here, but on many issues, they do see kind of eye to eye. Are they, are they allies, enemies, somewhere in between? Yeah, it's a really difficult one to call. And I think today we may well see for the first time a bit of that tension exposed in public. Um, the context for all of this, of course, is the coup against Mr. Erdogan, which uh, he believes, or the attempted coup, I, sh- I should say, that was that was put down, which he believes was orchestrated in some form or supported in some form by Western powers. This has really soured Erdogan's relationship with the West, which was pretty strong. We, we, we need to have that in mind, that we'll talk of EU accession and, 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 and lots of, they're, of course, a member of NATO, lots of US military presence there. He's really lost the trust of the West or believes that they've lost trust in him. And so Putin was an, an obvious ally. Putin completely took advantage of that and said, well, look, if you're not going to be friends with them, how about you be friends with us? There's there's lots of gas deals. They're building nuclear power plants. In Turkey, there's been an increase in, in tourism and, and in food supplies. And essentially, Putin is saying, look, if you don't trust them, be with us. The, the issue now, of course, is that Putin has much bigger game to play in the Middle East. So he's willing, if you like, to tolerate a certain amount of Turkish belligerence in Syria because he's got his eyes on much, much, a much, much bigger cake. He's looking at Israel. He's looking at the, at the Gulf countries, Libya, uh, Egypt. These are all areas Lebanon, where Putin needs to make sure that he's not focusing too much on Syria, giving too much away there that could affect the entire Middle East game. And Putin has won quite a lot of plaudits or comments from people saying that he's been quite successful in managing all these relationships in the Middle East. Are we starting to see that unravel now? I think we're starting to see how it might unravel. Um, Russia and Turkey are in opposition in Syria. They're also in opposition in Libya. If it breaks down in Syria and you see some kind of direct military conflict of some form between Russia and Turkey. And it must be stated here that both sides have been so, so strict in making sure they do not blame each other. Uh, you know, we've seen up to 40 uh, Turkish soldiers die in the last 10 days in airstrikes that some analysts have said were definitely Russian planes. Turkey has never blamed Russia for that. They are very, very careful to make sure they do not accuse Moscow of any kind of direct military attack on them. 
completely cognizant of, of what that could lead to. Now, of course, if the Syria relationship breaks down, then the Libya relationship could then break down. There are opposition sides there. Libya, of course, involves the Egyptian, it involves the UAE, there's European powers in there. That then could spread out in terms of the relationship. Everyone's completely forgetting about Iran in this picture. Um, while while Russia is providing the air support and some uh, large artillery to, to the Syrian army, it's the Iranians that are supplying most of the men, most of the manpower. So Iran is a big, big part of this picture, and Iran has its own demands. It, it doesn't really need to deal with Idlib. It, it, it's more concerned with other parts of Syria. But if Russia is pulling Iran into a conflict with Turkey, Iran's going to want to, to have some concessions elsewhere. That impacts uh, Russia's relationship with Israel, etc., etc., to Saudi and the Gulf. So, yes, this is why I think Putin is being much, much more calm. And, and some people have been quite surprised with how he's responded to this massive Turkish bombardment over the last week that's killed thousands of Syrian troops. Putin has seemed quite calm, and I think that's because he realizes this is just one part of the bigger picture, and he cannot afford to let the Syria card fall, and then the entire game falls apart. And what's the bigger picture look like from the Kremlin? I mean, here in Russia, the attention seems to be turning more towards domestic issues, raising living standards. We have this new constitution on the way. How important is the Syria conflict still to Russia and Vladimir Putin? Right. Syria has always been a, a difficult one, I think, to sell to the Russian public. I mean, you put it in context of the the, the military operation in, in Georgia or the invasion of Crimea. These were, these were uh, military operations where there was an obvious domestic benefit to, to Mr. Putin and to his ratings by achieving that whatever the risks with Syria it was a much much bigger gamble I mean he's gone on the record when he spoke to the Financial Times and spoke to myself uh, in the Kremlin he was saying this was a great way to show off our weapons you know we could this was a, this was essentially a training ground in real life um, it's obviously much much more serious than that but for him selling it to the Russian people was about stopping terrorism it was about uh, destroying ISIS that that has now been completed uh, but he's been dragged deeper and deeper in it's now become a geopolitical game and, and there are obvious benefits for him to continue However, selling that to the Russian public is difficult. Just last year, support for the war fell below those opposing it in Russia in 2019 for the first time. So Putin's job here is to make sure they get out with as few Russian casualties as possible. I think that's the real issue here. The more body bags that come back, the the, the more public trust in, in the war in Syria and therefore in the Kremlin's foreign operations uh, decreases. And when we talk about this rising level of public dissatisfaction, how does that compare to some of the other kind of conflicts that we've seen where this has become a real touch point, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan or the US in Iraq, for example? I think we're a long, long way away from comparisons with, with those two examples. Um, but by any real way of assessing Russia's uh, operations in Syria, it has been a success. Um, Putin loves to talk about the, the Western uh, US-led invasion of, uh, of Iraq and again in Libya is how that destabilized countries and brought far more problems to the Middle East than, than it than it tried to generate. Syria has not. Syria has, I think most Western observers would, would grudgingly agree that it has brought stability and it could have been a lot worse without. And I think the way that Russia and Turkey came together to respond to the US withdrawal by seizing that, that territory and by making sure there wasn't any spillover into terrorism was applauded in most places outside of DC. Now, if this drags on, if this becomes a full-on war between Turkey and, and Syria, which we are getting very, very close to, and if Russia continues to support Syria in that, then we could be talking about a very different scenario. But at the moment, Putin still, I think, has more, more chips in the positive ledger, and we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens today and, and how the rest of this year plays out. Thanks very much for coming in today, Henry. Thank you. Following Super Tuesday in the United States, it is shaping up to be a two-way fight between Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden to secure the Democratic nomination and go head-to-head -head with Donald Trump later this year. And let me tell Mr. Putin, who interfered in the 2016 election, try to bring Americans against Americans. Hey, Mr. Putin, 
If I'm president of the United States, trust me, you're not going to interfere in any more American elections. That was the unmistakable voice of Bernie Sanders responding to claims of Kremlin interference in the Democratic primaries. Because Putin knows if I am president of the United States, his days of tyranny and trying to intimidate the United States and those in Eastern Europe are over. I'm going to stand up to him. He's a bully. While that was his main opponent, Joe Biden who has overtaken Sanders after a strong performance on Super Tuesday and is now the bookie's frontrunner to scoop the nomination. On the line to discuss where the candidate sits on Russia, journalist Ben Judah, author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin, and who is now on the campaign trail in the US, reporting on Bernie Sanders' bid for the White House. Hello, Ben. Great to speak to you today. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Both of these guys have been around quite a long time, so we should have a pretty clear idea of where they stand on Russia and what their Russia policy might be should they get to the White House. Is that the case? I think that with Joe Biden, that's clearly the case. Joe Biden is a former vice president. He's been a kind of stalwart of the centrist wing of the Democratic um, Party for a generation you know, was at the heart of Russia and Ukraine policy in the Obama administration. So his outlook towards Russia is really more of the same as far as things are concerned in relation to the Obama administration. So minor tampering around the edges on climate, maybe a little bit more on rejoining the Paris uh, Climate Accords, maybe bit more kind of effort put into anti-corruption activities or, you know, sort of being in favour of getting rid of anonymous company production in the US, but nothing that breaks with the status quo. Meanwhile, Sanders really has quite a different vision of foreign policy. And the key elements that contain uh, Russia here are that Sanders committed to really effectively putting the country on a war footing as far as climate change is concerned, with radical, trenchant, FDR-level interventionist politics to finance not only a Green New Deal at home, but a global Green New Deal, which would seek to transform Europe's energy grid as part of that policy, whilst at the same time trying to take a hammer blow not only to one piece of the illicit finance plex, which is uh, an enormous company production in the US, but also to tax havens, uh, unscrupulous practices by banks, and the general sort of disorder and lack of regulation that reigns in the financial sector. And that would have a pretty significant consequence as far as Russian kleptocracy and the Russian financial footprint abroad is, or how Russia has weaponized illicit financial flows to direct influence uh, across the Western world and beyond. Despite Sanders talking quite tough on Putin and Russia, why is there still this lingering perception that he would be the Kremlin's favoured candidate? Well, because that is the narrative being pushed by his opponents. It's pretty simple. And by the fact that there has been some intelligence uh, releases which have been discredited from the Trump administration that appear to be indicating that the Kremlin could potentially be sort of trying to tamper in the primary to support uh, San- uh, support Sanders. And I just want to stress again that the politicised nature of that intelligence leak has been uh, released and that the Sanders campaign condemned it, uh, condemned it uh, utterly if it was indeed taking place. You know, 
that they believe that it, it had been, but it was uh, it was very much condemned. And there's been a lot of international talk about that particular report. But speaking more generally, how big of an issue is Russia in the campaign at the moment? Not like not as much as I think that foreign observers might have expected. Like the Sanders campaign isn't you know isn't making the relationship with Russia a key part of its focus. It's a domestic mobilization campaign which views itself as trying to change the Democratic Party first and in the country as far as key issues like the Green New Deal or Medicare for all are concerned. How much coverage have these sporadic instances of uh, Russian internet uh, meddling uh, received? Like one or two days of news? Like not very much is the answer. Sticking with Sanders for a little bit longer, he's also won the support of the Kremlin's main opponent here, Alexei Navalny. Uh, what's what's going on there? Well, I just want to firstly stress that this is not something that Bernie Sanders has actively sought, but Bernie Sanders has been pushing consistently through his career a anti-oligarchic economic uh, policy, which he wants to break the influence and control that sort of vested uh, financial interests have over the political process and that that chimes deeply with Alexei Navalny's vision of how power is concentrated in the 21st century and with Navalny's sense that the power of the Putin regime rests on anonymous shell companies, tax havens, banks being out of the grip of regulation and a unwillingness in Western countries to uh, enforce anti-money laundering laws or develop ones that are effective enough to catch this kind of behaviour. Now, if we turn to Joe Biden for a second, if you're sitting in the Kremlin right now, how does his agenda look to you? Well, I don't think that for a sort of seasoned observer, it will look too different than uh, if you're in Washington or if you're in Moscow. Like what Joe Biden promises to be is, in effect, a sort of American Brezhnev, a sort of ailing, frail, confused figure that won the trust of a party nomenclature in a decaying superpower based on the promise that there would be no structural reforms, that there would be no change to a sort of hegemonic, interventionist uh, foreign policy and no curbs on special interests, because changing any of the above would be too difficult. And if you're looking at Joe Biden from the White House or from uh, the Kremlin, you know, this is in a lot of ways a sort of attempting uh, attempting target and somebody you could be quite pleased to be up against. And whoever secures the nomination, how much scope do they actually have to influence US policy on Russia? In terms of can a president change uh, policy towards uh, Russia? The answer is absolutely, because the president is commander-in-chief, and the one area that the president can really decisively change policy is in matters of foreign affairs. And a good example of this, uh, of when a president is committed to uh, a change in international posture, he can achieve a big swing, is look at how Trump transformed policy towards China. 
not only in how the relationship with Beijing plays out on an interpersonal level, but military posture in the region, trade. Uh, there's been a complete transformation in US-China uh, relations and in how the issue is framed in Washington. If Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee and then eventually the president, you would see a posture towards Russia that would be based on flipping an old paradigm. The previous paradigm has been that the United States needs to to confront Russia through proxies abroad in order to defend America at home. Sanders' vision is that America needs to reform at home in order to undermine Russia abroad. And that in his vision, the Kremlin is based on really three pillars of power. Propaganda, which he can neutralize by refusing to engage in Cold War rhetoric. Hydrocarbons, which he can, over a five or ten year period, undermine with his global Green New Deal as a centerpiece of his foreign policy, which includes $200 billion funds made available by the Treasury to finance energy transition in Europe and by forcing a race to the top between the European Commission and uh, the United States on green energy transition. And the final pillar is kleptocracy. And he believes that only taking a hammer blow to offshore and illicit finance can the structural aids to the power of oligarchs uh, be limited. So that's the Sanders vision. The Biden vision will continue very much in the old paradigm of trying to confront Russia through proxies abroad, whilst not viewing what happens domestically as really having any link with uh, the sources of Russian power or of uh, Russian conduct. And thanks for joining us from the campaign today, Ben. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That's it for this week on From Russia with News. Thanks for tuning in. And if you get a chance, please do rate the show on your favorite podcast app. It'll help other Russia watchers find us. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter at The Moscow Times to tell us what you think and let us know if there are topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes. Head over to our website for the results of that crunch summit between Putin and Erdogan, as well as the latest politics, business, art and culture. While you're there, you won't be able to miss our very large and very bright crowdfunding campaign. And if you like this podcast and our other free independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing some spare change our way. I'm your host, Jake Cordell. Our producer was Pyotr Sauer. We look forward to joining you next week with more news from Russia.